Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. The goal of our center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Professor Tendaya Chume of the UCLA School of Law where she serves as faculty director of the Promised Institute for Human Rights. I'm delighted to say that Professor Achume is also a member of the Luskin Center Faculty Advisory Committee. Since 2017, she has also served as special rapporteur on contemporary forms of racism for the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, and she is the fifth person to occupy that position since its creation in 1993. This makes for a very demanding schedule because in addition to her work as teacher, scholar, and administrator at UCLA, Professor Achume has to submit many detailed reports every year as special rapporteur. So for example, in 2019 alone, she submitted four reports to the United Nations General Assembly and the United Nations Human Rights Council on topics ranging from the use of reparations in response to racial discrimination and slavery to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in the world. And so she is uniquely qualified to talk about the state of human rights in the world, past and present, especially given the new challenges posed by the coronavirus crisis. So we're very fortunate to have you with us here, Tendai. Many thanks to you. Thanks, David. It's, it's really a pleasure to be uh, joining you on this podcast. It's a pity we cannot be connecting in person, but I'm really, really excited for the opportunity to connect. Great. I look forward to our next person-to-person uh, -person encounter. Um, in the first part of our conversation uh, in this Then and Now podcast, I'd like to focus on the past. Um, and let's begin with a personal question. How did you get into the field of human rights, both as a scholar and as an activist? So I, I think about this question often, and I think about it uh, in the context of teaching, especially, and teaching human rights. My own journey was uh, rather winding. So when I was in high school, I was really good at sciences and had very inspiring um, physics teacher and, and thought I might be an engineer and then thought I might go um, into medicine. But it was in law school when I took... Um, a seminar, actually it was before law school, right before I went to law school in undergrad, I took a seminar that was taught by a woman and it was on law and international development policies and it had human rights um, as part of the, of the syllabus. And in that class, I remember feeling as though the human rights frame seemed to offer the most powerful language to describe the world and what was wrong with it. And that was very compelling um, to me. And so I sort of fell in love with human rights and fell in love with law at the same time and changed trajectory then. And it's not that human rights is, is perfect. It's not that law is perfect. But I, I really do think I was, I was drawn to this work because of the way that human rights allows us to think through um, the problems of our day and, and the emphasis that it places on, on human dignity rather than, say, procedural fairness or, or other ways of thinking about what law can be. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sort of interested in, 
in your um, perspective, from your perspective, how you see the arc of human rights. You talked about um, what drew you to the field. How do you understand, I suppose in historical terms, the arc of human rights, um, both of the course of your own interest in the field, but even beyond that, really since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Is the arc bending towards justice? What have been the high points and low points? Um, because to the layperson, it often can seem like a very high-minded but ineffectual activity um, with limited means of enforcement against violators of human rights. And I'm mm -hmm. sort of interested in both your personal and historical perspective mm -hmm. on that arc of human rights activity of discourse. So you're right to point to the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights as, as one of the key moments that we point to in the modern era of, of human rights. And I think if you look back to that moment and you think about where we are now, my general answer will be that I think we're, we've been on an up, upward trajectory in general, but with a lot of chaos, right? So up and down, but in general, moving upwards would be how I analyze it. And I think about this in a very personal way. As a Black woman, I think about the conditions of possibility with respect to my human rights in different parts of the world today and compare it to what life was like in 1948. And I would say that I think um, things are better now, even though there's a lot that is bad. So I think there's a positive story in there, but definitely lots of, of up and down downs. But I think looking to history is really important for a number of reasons, especially for people who are committed to, to human rights. And I want to highlight a, a few things that I thought it might be worth noting. So one is to really point out that most of the remarkable milestones we've had in the field of human rights have occurred alongside existing structures of inequality. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is in 1948. You can think about the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which is the big treaty regime at the global level that prohibits racial discrimination and that most countries the world have signed on to. That was 1965. So if you think about what's happening in the world in 1948 and 1965, there is still a lot of inequality and discrimination that exists as a matter of law. I mean, when the UDHR is adopted, the Civil Rights Act hasn't even passed; had been passed in the in the in the U.S. Brown v. Board of Education hadn't been passed in the U.S. So, if you are, say, for example, a, a black person who was living in the U.S. in 1948, even as this milestone was being adopted, your lived conditions would belie the adoption of that remarkable milestone. And you know, this can seem depressing in some ways because it might be taken as a sign that you know, these treaties and agreements and documents um, are useless. They don't actually bring about an end to, to violations. But I think it's actually a source of, of hope. I've, I've been thinking about it as a source of hope, looking back in history and realizing that these agreements often exist alongside conditions of suffering, but that doesn't mean that the treaties and the instruments don't necessarily then play a role in... Um, in, in emancipation and in, in more dignified lives and in more equality, um, even though there is complicated political, economic and social realities that exist side by side um, with them. And so I think that in general, I would say um, the human rights situation on an aggregate level in the world is likely improved and has been improved by the existence of um, the human rights frame. And I'll give you a very concrete example in the context of the COVID pandemic, 
where I would say we're seeing a rise in, in xenophobia and, and racism for sure, but also a, a, a clarity of message in terms of condemnation of those acts that I think is made possible by having a globally shared language around what the meaning of these things are. You know, what is racial discrimination? What is xenophobic discrimination? And so much of the human rights regime is about giving shared meaning to, to all of those um, issues. Now, I'm also very critical of the human rights uh, framework in many ways in my reports and my scholarship. Um, and maybe as we as we progress over the course of the, of the uh, conversation, I can talk about some of those concerns and deep misgivings that I have. But um, overall, I think we're the world is a better place with the frame than without it, even though there may be better possibilities out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, you know, on a related theme, as we think of the past 70 years since the Universal Declaration, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about whether the international human rights regime outpaces sovereign nations in their commitment uh, to human and civil rights. Um, is it the case that sort of the high-minded internationalists are pushing the action um, and the nation states uh, where the real power of enforcement lies are dragging their heels? Would that be a fair, fair assessment or not necessarily? You know, in, in my work as a special rapporteur, which has me closer than I've ever been to global policymaking institutions, so where these high-minded ideals are actually, you know, adopted as legally binding obligations, my sense has been that it's just a lot more chaotic than that, you know. So even this idea that there's high-minded states that then push for adopting human rights agreements and then they leave their nations behind there can be a lot of contestation among states and a lot of confusion, a lot of different incentives among different governments and then even within governments so that sometimes your allies on one question are not your allies on another question. And then in some question, in some issues, you find that civil society organizations are the ones who are holding the feet of their governments to the fire and saying, you need to sign on to um, this treaty. And, you know, we think in in the in the global north, I think there can be a tendency to associate countries in the global north with progressive ideals and pushing for these ideals. When it comes to racism and xenophobia specifically, I have found that countries in the global north have been the most resistant to adopting norms. And this goes all the way back to, you know, 1965, when you have the adoption of the treaty that I mentioned, 6465, when you have countries in the global north really resistant and it's countries in the global south that are pushing. And then there's other issues like equality for LGBT groups, you know, where countries in the North have been really strong on this, but countries in the South have been really um, resistant. So there's, there's, there's more chaos, I think, than is necessarily understood from the outside. And even, you know, I went to law school and did all kinds of things. And there's a way in which on the outside, there's a coherence that is imputed to the way that these norms um, are developed. But I think it's a lot more chaotic and that actually means that there's more opportunities and it means that you can move forward even when it seems um, difficult. So that's a general sense. Now, all of that said, I do think the countries that control what ends up being adopted as law can sometimes be a reflection of kind of how geopolitical power is distributed. So there's a very big debate or has been a debate in the human rights field about civil and political rights versus socioeconomic rights. And I think that liberal democracies have advanced 
civil political rights in a way that has left behind socioeconomic rights. And that's a big problem because I think many nations see socioeconomic um, conditions as a priority and an urgent one that has to be addressed by the human um, rights frame. So I think some of the the dynamics that your question rightly points to exist, you know, where you have certain countries that take the lead or leaders that take the lead in a way that leaves their nations behind. But I think there's also a lot of um, chaos in, in, and, and by chaos, I just mean difficult to predict or multi-directional back and forth in terms of what determines the words that end up on the page. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. It does. Um, I'm just curious. Um, to hear more about what um, alters the um, the complexion of the mechanism of human rights, um, and I'm thinking in particular of um, a more recent development: uh, the introduction of the Rome Statute of 2002 mm. that created the International Criminal Court, which would mm-hmm. seem to represent a step forward. Um, and I'm wondering if that's an accurate assessment. If that's one of the high points in the 70-year history. Um, and in fact, I'm just wondering: is it how do we how should we understand um, uh, its in, its enactment? Um, mm-hmm. Was it responsive to the ethnic uh, tensions uh, and allegations of genocide in mm-hmm. uh, in the world in in Yugoslavia, Rwanda? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How are we to understand it and its significance? Um, I think that's a a really good question. And I think the timing of asking this question and thinking about this question is a, is a really important one. And I think looking at the ICC is, is yet another powerful case study for the importance of, of history and thinking about the past, the present, the future, and how we factor that into our evaluations um, of success. So on the one hand, I think the International Criminal Court was a very big achievement for the human rights movement in the sense that it was the first permanent international tribunal, actually it's the only one that we have now, permanent international court that has um, jurisdiction to prosecute individuals for um, serious violations, for mass human rights um, violations. And I think having individual liability for genocide, for crimes against humanity, for all of these um, uh, violations that previously there was no international mechanism for having um, accountability aside from the ad hoc tribunals that had come um, from the past, I think that was a very uh, big achievement. And it was one that was very much I think inspired in many ways by some of the tribunals that had come before it, including Nuremberg and then you know the the tribunals that you were referencing as well. Um, at the same time, you know that institution, the International Criminal Court, has not escaped the pathologies that I think undermine the success of the human rights regime more generally. Um, and I can name uh, two two pathologies that I think are. Um, worth noting. And actually, I don't know if pathology is the right word, because that suggests an illness from the outside, whereas the things that I'm pointing to are sort of baked into the the system. One is the court is still subject to the geopolitics that mean that it has been subject to criticism for being biased, right? So its entire docket um, has focused on um, 
cases uh, on trying basically actors from the African continent. And there's been a big backlash and critique about that. And, and I think the court has been doing the best that it can to try and think about what it would mean to pursue accountability in contexts outside of the African continent. And, you know, it's, it's not as though these mass human rights violations only take place in Africa. They take place all over the world. In fact, there was a, uh, uh, there's a, there's been uh, a very strong call, for example, for the U.S. to be investigated for for potential violations and its engagement in Afghanistan, for example. Um, so there's these allegations of bias, these allegations that the power politics of the global order affect the way that the ICC work are real and genuine, you know, and they compromise its capacity. I think a different kind of critique is the emphasis and resources that have been sunk into focusing on trying individuals when many of these um, situations, genocide, crimes against humanity, are incubated in structural contexts that can't be fully addressed by holding individuals um, accountable. It's not to say that there's not a place for individual accountability, but one of the critiques of the ICC is that the nature of the resources and oxygen that it has taken up has drawn attention away from some of those structural interventions. So all of this is to say it's not a perfect institution. In fact, it's an imperfect one, but it's also one that represents an ambition that is is remarkable, right? If you had said that there would be a permanent court that is, you know, tasked with trying individuals for for um, all of these crimes, including heads of state and individuals who previously were immune from them, you know, even in 1995, I think people would have said, you know, you're nuts. Whereas in 2002, it came into um, being. So, I think with the ICC. We don't know what it will become in the future. And history tells us that many institutions begin one way and then end up in a completely different place. Um, But yeah, so those are just some thoughts on on the International Criminal Court. Right, right. I mean, it is curious and different from nation-based means of legal enforcement and jurisdiction in that there's a kind of voluntary quality um, where you have, as in the case of the United States, some of the biggest actors on the international stage sometimes just taking their ball and going home and saying, we're not playing in this game. Um, and therein uh, ends the, uh, the, the, the legal inquiry. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, right. And this leads to necessary imbalances in the, the disposition of justice um, at the international level. No, absolutely. And, and you're right to say it's, it's that it's, it's countries like the U S that can say, we're not going to be a part of this. And then it's also the fact that, the UN Security Council can refer countries that are not even parties to the treaty. And, you know, so the five permanent members of the UN Security Council have this power as well um, that, that people have complained about. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those other structural mechanisms um, for intervention that exist in the international legal order? Um, and is your position as special rapporteur one of them? So uh, that's a really good question, David. And I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that Quest, that kind of question about my rapporteurship. So that is an, is an achievement. So thinking about whether the rapporteurships are a way of taking a more structural approach to some of these problems. So I would say yes. I mean, maybe this is an aspirational yes, but I, I think that it is a yes. And um, maybe it would be helpful for me to talk a little bit about um, what the rapporteurship is and then connect that to your question. Does that make sense? Yeah, please do. Okay, so the the special rapporteurs, essentially what we are is we are independent experts that are appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, which for listeners who don't know, is just the UN body that is tasked with 
you know, the human rights work for the most part um, of the UN. And so we're appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, but we remain independent. So special rapporteurs exist not only on racism, they exist on issues to do with gender discrimination, you know, arbitrary detention, there's many thematic um, and country mandates. And we're appointed by the UN, but we don't, so we speak to the UN, but we don't speak for the UN. This is often how I explain it. Um, so I'm not an actual UN official in the sense that they don't employ me. And I think that's really important because it means the special rapporteurs become independent voices that can feed into the UN human rights system in the way um, that isn't prey to some of the political and economic and just bureaucratic dynamics that can exist with any institution, um, especially the UN. Uh, what I do for the most part is three things. I produce um, thematic reports, which you highlighted, and these thematic reports are supposed to call attention to pressing issues um, of human rights violations relating to race, ra racism, xenophobia, and related intolerance, and then also provide um, guidance to states on what their human rights obligations entail in those different contexts. So you mentioned my um, reparations report. I, I do two reports on, on um, the glorification of neo-Nazism and anti-Semitism in, in, in general. Um, I've done reports on extractivism, natural resource extractivism. My next one's coming up, focus on, on race and tech and thinking about how emerging digital technologies are resulting in racialized exclusion. And I guess those in some ways go to what you're describing because they allow for a structural analysis of human rights situations. And then I can make recommendations um, for steps that states can take. Now, these recommendations, you know, sometimes states will adopt them. There is no mechanism for forcing them to do it within the UN. But they're most powerful, I think, when they dovetail with advocacy initiatives that groups and national contexts also have. So they can point to these reports as further support for initiatives that they're engaging in. So sometimes thematic reports might support litigation in national contexts. They might support advocacy, legislative advocacy. Um, but so, so thematic reports are one thing I do. I also do country missions. So I do fact-finding missions to different countries. I've been to the UK, Morocco, um, the Netherlands, and Qatar. And I produce a report that documents the human rights situation from a racism and xenophobia perspective. And that report is then presented to the Human Rights Council. And again, those can be really powerful for advocates um, on the ground who are trying to push for change. Um, I know that in one of my reports that I worked on, for example, which was on the UK, I communicated with human rights advocates who were able to use some of the reporting that we produced in that context to end um, data sharing between the NHS, which is the, the healthcare service in the UK, and immigration enforcement actors, which was undercutting, you know, the capacity to provide human rights to, to different um, actors. So there's the country reports. Um, and then I also take communications. And this essentially is like a complaints mechanism. So people anywhere in the world, as long as their country is a member of the UN, can send communications to me alleging violations of, you know, according to racial discrimination or, or other issues related to my mandate. And based on those complaints, I can then engage governments to require or to, to encourage them to, to hold the violations and to actually provide an account of what action that they're taking um, in response. So the idea with the rapporteurship is that there is this, you know, not only attempting to shore up the norms on equality and non-discrimination, not only calling attention to the biggest threats, 
but also providing a mechanism for individuals and organizations to also involve the UN in local and national problems around which they want a more urgent response. And so you've been the special rapporteur since 2017. What's it been like for you? Rewarding, meaningful, exhilarating, frustrating, all of the above? (laughs) Yeah, all of the above and more. All of the above and more. I mean, it's really been a roller coaster ride. And I actually, you know, I I say this often when I talk about this. I didn't think I'd actually be appointed. You know, I just, I I didn't think that it would happen. And it did, which I'm really excited about. I'm, I'm, you know, the first woman in this role. The rapporteurs tend to skew on the older side of things. There were just so many reasons why I didn't think it would be something that would work out. So some free advice for any um, young people who are listening to this podcast is never count yourself out. You should always apply even when you don't think um, there's a chance. But yeah, it's been really um, a privilege to do this work. I feel like I've gotten to meet people who are doing anti-racism work that truly blows my mind. You know, people who are risking their lives on a daily basis for their ideals. And, and that's been really powerful on a personal level and even a professional level to be um, exposed to. You see how even institutions like the UN and even governments, which oftentimes governments are, are violators of human rights, and then with the UN, they, they are not always the strongest on anti-racism issues. You see, though, even in those institutions and in those places that there are people who are committed to fighting the good fight, and, and that's been really good. But on the other hand, it's also been really difficult and disheartening. You know, I think I was naive in some ways before doing this work. I thought the work would be mostly about solving sophisticated problems and really kind of complex ways of thinking about what what racial discrimination is. But I spend most of my time just fighting against denialism of racism, right? So just the failure of political leaders of, you know, different actors, powerful actors, just their denial that racism has actually a problem, that xenophobia is actually a problem, that anti-Semitism is actually a problem. Like, I feel like as though the greatest challenges are the most basic and, and that um, can be really hard. The other thing is that these positions are really under-resourced, you know, so so it's it's framed as a three-month when you apply, they say it's three months of your time, which is just false. There's no way this is a three-month commitment. It's unpaid work, and um, it's a huge amount of it. And so the resources that they provide are really, really low, and yet I think the expectations and the possibilities are really, really high. I often think about how you know, only academics or people who are in the kinds of jobs that allow them to take on additional jobs Um, while they're in those jobs can really do this, which means that some of the people who are doing the most powerful human rights work are just, you know, ineligible for this because they need to earn a salary, for example. Um, So it's really, it's complicated. It's really, really complicated. It's maybe one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Um, But I I do feel really fortunate to, to be in the role for sure. How do you think your reports land? What impact do they have? To whom do you present them? And what is the afterlife of your reports? Of the reports? Yeah, so I mean, this is is a really hard question to answer because I think I, I don't go all of the places that my reports go, so it can be very difficult to know. But there's, there's kind of things that I'm more aware of and things that I'm less aware of. So one is that these def- they I, I finalize the reports and then I actually present them 
to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly. I just I mentioned what the Human Rights Council was, but the General Assembly is, you know, sort of the parliament of the UN in some ways, even though it doesn't have lawmaking power, but it's the body in which every country has a seat at the table. And so at a minimum, you know, I, the words that I write get said out loud to you know, to representatives of states. And so, and they, there's actually a process, an interactive dialogue where they can engage me on the findings of my report. And some of those interactions can actually be fairly substantive. And sometimes I'll have bilateral meetings with governments based on the reports that I produce. Civil society organizations also um, use thematic reports that are produced by my mandate and country reports as well. And as I mentioned, they use them um, in different ways. And I found that they are most effective when the reports can be coordinated with existing strategies on the ground, right? So so the reports, I don't think, can on their own change any human rights situation, but they can be part of a multi-strategic, local, national kind of process for bringing about um, change. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm discovering, and, and this is just you know, me confessing that I'm, I'm still learning about what it means to be in this role, is I'm trying to figure out how to make the reports more accessible. You know, these reports are hosted on a UN website that even I have trouble navigating. You know? <laughs> and while I read 60, 70 page articles all the time, to think that policymakers and advocates have time to read 20 page reports, it's just we produce them in a way that presumes so much that is unrealistic about the way that material is actually used. So one of the things I'm trying to think about now is how I make the reports more accessible, you know, shorter forms, you know, videos, all of those sorts of things. And I think there are rapporteurs who over time have gotten better at doing that. And that's something that is a kind of project on the horizon. I see Twitter and a YouTube channel in your future, Tendai. Oh, man. So, I mean, I've thought a lot about social media and one of the things that makes it hard, and I'm sure you can you can relate to this, David, is just the, the trolls. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very, yeah. this work is psychologically and emotionally really um, taxing and social media sometimes can be the place where conversations go to get uncomplicated, oversimplified, and then just really vitriolic. And, and already I receive enough vitriol that I, I, I kind of get scared of social media, but it is, it's important. This is like a main way that people communicate. And so um, I may have to find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as challenging um, and rewarding and important as your work has been, um, it seems like it may never be more important than in the present moment, which brings its own very substantial challenges. One of which is that we are in a phase of what uh, Victor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister has called illiberal democracy, a period of uh, xenophobic ethno-nationalism that has seized the world from uh, east to west and back again. Um, And then layered on top of that is the COVID-19 crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems to give license to governments to enact emergency regulations and surveillance regimes that threaten basic rights. So I'm wondering how you're thinking about your work in light of these, this double challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think your framing is, is an important framing, which highlights continuities, right? So, so dynamics such as the, the rise of ethno-nationalist populism and, and how there's a, there's, the COVID pandemic has amplified dynamics that were already steadily on the rise, so, so there's continuity there and amplification, and then also created new opportunities 
for taking further projects that we're already gathering full steam um, in advance. And I think that makes for a really, really complicated context for trying to fight against um, xenophobia and racism. And, and, and a few things that, that um, are, are specific challenges. One is, you know, I've been describing uh, what I've been calling entrepreneurs of intolerance. So certain actors who stand to truly profit from intolerance in this moment. You know, we tend to think of racism and xenophobia as bad outcomes that are the result of, you know, people's prejudices or whatever the case might be. But what we're seeing um, very clearly in the context of the COVID pandemic is that there are individuals who profit off of intolerance and who are in, who, who gain from being able to sow the seeds of, of misinformation, of, you know, suspicion and all of these sorts of things. And I would say that the president of this country would fall in that um, category. And then I think you also have what you might think of as COVID opportunism. And, and this is foreshadowed in your, quest, in your question where actors who were looking for ways to roll out repressive measures, whether it's repressive border regimes, whether it's repressive measures around civil liberties and political liberties are taking advantage of this moment to curtail those even further under the guise of it being public health responses and in ways that I fear are going to be very difficult to roll back even after, fingers crossed, the, the public health emergencies that we're facing um, move forward. And I think in this country, we're seeing something really complicated where um, the language of civil liberties is being used to undercut public health responses. And I think also to reinforce inequalities along racial and ethnic lines in ways that are very, very um, complicated. Um, but essentially, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, illiberal democracy or the, 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 the moment of illiberal democracy or the, or the period of illiberal democracy, as, as you described it, has basically been about the steady hollowing out of so many of the fundamental protections that exist in liberal democracy. And what we're seeing in the pandemic is the, what, the consequences of that. What does it mean to have had a, a period of hollowing out and then now we're, we're living with that? So that's I think really, really hard, and you see it in the in the numbers. There's just greater reports of racism and and xenophobia, just horrific acts of abuse and impunity that um, we cannot deny. And also, I think an exacerbation of structural forms of exclusion as well, and 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 that's really alarming. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wonder if there is at the same time any um, more positive opportunism that uh, exists in the world. Yeah. Um, because um, the pandemic is global. Um, part of what mm -hmm. it has pointed up is the inadequacy of single nation state responses to the uh, mm -hmm. to the health, health crisis. Um, it has certainly afforded people an opportunity to see uh, the ugly underbelly of uh, dysfunctional healthcare and social service systems in their own countries. Mm -hmm. um, we have been uh, struck and in some cases horrified by the lack of coordination between individual nation states, including the United States and the World Health Organization. Um, and if ever there were a moment to think of what uh, a more structurally interconnected world would look like, it seems now is it. Um, and I just wonder you know, whether we also have reached um, yet the other end of the spectrum from, say, 2002 and the creation of the International Criminal Court um, 
you know, have we begun to see the end of that period of illiberal democracy, uh, xenophobic nationalism, closed borders, um, uh, uh, opposition to international jurisdiction uh, and means of enforcement? Uh, does COVID open up new possibilities or is that just naive uh, uh, fantasizing? <laughs> so yes, on both fronts. I mean, I don't think that change, meaningful change is possible without fantasy and fantasizing. You know, I think yeah. so yeah. much of looking to history is, is, I think, you know, thinking about how after the fact, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, you know, we are here. We have an international criminal court or we have an international human rights framework. Of course, we have them when in prior eras, those sorts of things would have been inconceivable. You know, I remember the, the kind of moment in my life that I will always look back to as one that reminds me that fantasy is really important was the end of apartheid. I was alive for that. I remember seeing Nelson Mandela walking on the streets. And that's something that had felt inconceivable for, for many for so long, and, it, and it, it happened. So this is just to say that I'm a very big fan of fantasy and, and, and radical reimagining as, as companions of, of um, social change. So, so, so engage in it, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but I do think you're right that there's, it's, it's an opportunity for, for more positive things to be happening. And I think two things to highlight. One is I think we're having conversations about racism and xenophobia in the COVID context that there was not space for prior to COVID. There's just been, I think, even just within the human rights community, which isn't always the, the fastest to call out inequality and, and non-discrimination, even though it often will highlight other kinds of human rights violations. Inside and outside of the human rights movement, I think there's just been a very strong and powerful attempt to shore up a discourse around racism and xenophobia as problems and as unacceptable. And that's exciting. I think it allows for the possibility of, of more, more coalitions. So in my work now, I'm, I'm there's greater visibility of anti-Asian racism, which prior to the pandemic, I don't think was necessarily getting the attention that it was getting before. And I think this raises the opportunity again for, yeah, alliances among different groups that are fighting against racism and also just for a different kind of conversation that we hadn't been seeing before. I think also we're in a moment that maybe permits for bigger thinking, right? So, so I think the pandemic makes clear that multilateral institutions and ways of cooperating to sustain and manage interconnection, which is just a fact of our lives, are just absolutely vital, right? We need these systems. The question then becomes, how do these systems need to shift in ways then that are better at facilitating interconnection. And you and I have spoken about, about this, and I think this opportunity is one that we have to seize. The conversations during the pandemic, I think, shouldn't just be diagnostic. They should also be for, sorry, forward-looking, and they should be bold in the nature of their forward-lookingness. You know, can we be creative? Can we come out of this radically reimagining what equality requires each of us as individuals to do. I think that to me is, is where I go um, to be hopeful. Right. So um, seizing upon the imperative to be bold in this moment um, and engaging in your kind of fantastical realism, where would you like the international human rights edifice to be in 10 years? What would be um, a stretch, but um, uh, a real hope uh, of what it would look like. Oh, so this also another question that I don't think I've ever been asked, which are like my favorite, because then you get to think new things. I think at a minimum, 
there's two things that that to me would signal very important developments. So one is generally having the human rights system and framework be more closely connected to the lived experiences of people on whose behalf it seeks to intervene. So if we're thinking about racism, xenophobia, and related intolerance in particular, the groups that are most impacted by those harms being more central to producing knowledge in the system would be key. So now I think we spend a lot of time within the human rights framework, you know, reaching out to survivors and and victims of discrimination to get their stories and and hopefully tell better stories on on their behalf. But really, we should be looking to those groups as sources of information about what the law means, about what the frameworks should be, about what the policy responses are. So just a shift in in how knowledge is produced and what kind of knowledge is recognized as formal human rights knowledge would be really high. I would like to go to my next, you know, human rights council meeting in Geneva and have my consultations be with representative um, groups, groups that are representative of of the, the issues rather than just the typical elites that dominate the space. So that would be a very big and significant change that would be valuable. Another one relates to something that I was speaking about um, before, and it, you know, it may seem a little bit um, out of uh, left field a little bit because of the COVID pandemic, but I think it relates to the COVID pandemic, which is, again, making human rights uh, relevant to questions of economic inequality in ways that are more um, sustained. You know, having a human rights critique of Um, neoliberal policies that I think have resulted in or that are deeply implicated in some of the um, forms of exclusion that have permitted for the, you know, the space that the ethno-nationalist actors have been able to occupy in these really powerful ways. Just thinking about how capitalism works and what the human rights frame can say to make it um, more equitable, I think that would be um, really, really great. And so those are two things that I think of as not radical reimagining, because when I start radical reimagining, I start thinking beyond even the nation state. This is just kind of 10 years from now. I think both of those things would be massive wins. Right. So some of your colleagues, I think, have suggested that the human rights paradigm itself is passe, um, in part because it doesn't account sufficiently for social and economic uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hear you saying is uh, the paradigm uh, is not spent. Um, it can and must incorporate into it, mm-hmm. and perhaps more meaningfully so than in the past, uh, social and economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a fair reading? Well, so I, to, the, to, the, to those who, who say that the human rights paradigm is spent, I would say the human rights paradigm has deep, has fundamental flaws, right? Its relationship to sovereignty and how I think it, it just in many different ways that we could talk about in a different way, cedes power to sovereign nations in ways that undercuts the rights of individuals and groups. It appears in so many different parts of the human rights framework in ways that are you know, really problematic with um, international human rights or even with international law generally, both fields have not fully reckoned with their imperial past, with their connection and embeddedness in European colonial projects, you know, and that results in shortcomings that exist today. So I don't want to be somebody who who is seen to be somebody who thinks the framework is, is perfect. I'm one of its biggest critics, but I don't think it's spent. And I think 
if to think that it is spent is to have a, a fairly narrow view of who or what the human rights paradigm is. And I'll give you um, an example that has stayed with me from, from my rapporteurship. So with respect to this very critique of in economic inequality and the human rights um, paradigm, if you read the literature on human rights, this is a critique that is articulated over and over again. When I just started my um, rapporteurship, one of the first things that I did is I traveled to um, Colombia for a consultation that was being held by the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights, which is a regional body. Um, and there I met with Afro-Colombian and indigenous uh, Colombian um, activists, anti-racism activists, who um, in this consultation basically described the conditions of their oppression in the most powerful economic but human rights-based critique um, that I've ever encountered, right? And, and in that moment, the, the power of the human rights paradigm felt very real because it was rooted in these lived experiences and these long battles where the individuals who have been living, you know, the human rights implications of different interventions just very clearly spoke to that. Now you compare that to reading cases or reading even what academics write about human rights. There's a very big gap there. So I think whether or not the paradigm is spent is in part a function of where we locate and who we locate the paradigm in, to the extent that we continue to exclude voices and actors who can bring the kind of vigor and imagination and rethinking that is necessary to animate the paradigm, because really it's just a tool. If we can include those voices, then it's not done. But if we continue to rely on diplomats, on elites, on professor this and professor that to be the, the final voices on this, you know, and I think about youth, for example, how we often leave them out of human rights conversations. Um, I, think, I think basically this is to say this, the relevance of the paradigm will depend on, on, on how deeply it integrates the voices and perspectives and energies of those who are doing the most powerful human rights work. So as we move toward conclusion, um, I'd like you to reflect on what voices and actors have uh, made possible meaningful change in the realm of human rights and who have inspired you. Who have your inspirations been in this oh, work? Who have my inspirations been in this work? You know, I have to say that that's, that's a really, really hard question. There's, there's actors who I've come to, to meet within the human rights system who I look to and think they've done this work in very powerful, um, inspiring ways. Gay McDougall, um, who is from the U.S. and was a member of the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, comes to mind. Anastasia Crickley, who's Irish and was also um, uh, the chairperson of, of the Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So there's, there's, there's figures like that. Then there's the people who just have the kind of lasting impression where it's like, you know, they change who you are and how you think about who you want to be in this world. And some of the people who I can't name, who I've encountered on some of my country missions, and these are people whose names never get known. These are people who are really kind of working at the, at the front lines and also very far away removed from, from lines of power are them, I think are, but at a very fundamental level, I think my biggest role models are members of my own uh, family, my mother, my father, my grandmother, my siblings. I think a lot about my grandmother who 
I think in some ways, and, and, and many others, I mean, she listens to this podcast. I don't want other people in my family to think they're not inspiring, but she is one of the people who I think has just lived a life that puts the dignity of individuals above all else, which is what I think it means to be a human rights um, advocate. And so setting aside all of those other big figures, I really think what keeps me going and what keeps me motivated and what has really shaped me are these people that I've been fortunate to have watch just be good people in, in very direct and interpersonal ways. And, and I think that's what we're aiming for in, in our work as human rights advocates. Well, I can't think of a better way to bring to an end our conversation. This has been a really illuminating and inspiring conversation with Professor Tendaya Chume, uh, Professor of Law at UCLA and Special Rapporteur for Contemporary Forms of Racism at the United Nations. Tendaya, it's been a great pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much, David. And um, if you ever want me to come back, I don't even know if that's possible, I would love to. This is a really exciting initiative to be a part of. So thank you. It would be amazing <laughs> to have you back. Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Uh, the podcast can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Um, special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.